Rapture. Did you ever understand that the things we do are not always the things we want to do? And did you ever understand that the things we say are not always the things we want to say? And especially not Listening to CITR Radio FM 102 Cable 88.5. Yes, we've finally moved, or we've sadly moved to 88.5. And Denardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. You just heard right there Razika from Bergen, Norway, with Nyet Pa Nyet. Brand new from Razika. Today on the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show, part two of an interview with Joey Shedhead, Joe Keithley from DOA. Also, Mike Palm from Agent Orange will be calling into the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show. Agent Orange are playing on Monday in Vancouver at the Rickshaw Theatre. Plus, Martin Creed, artist Martin Creed, will be phoning into the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show as well. So, Joe Shithead Keithley, Mike Palm from Agent Orange, and Martin Creed all on the Nardwarta the Human Serviette Radio Show. And we have the first of our callers right here. Hello, caller, are you there? Yes, I am. How are you doing? Good. Who are you? I'm Joe from DOA. Joe, welcome back to the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show. Part two of the epic interview. Yeah, what happened last week? How'd you do on that baseball game? Oh, we lost and lost the uh, inning uh, 11-10. So uh, we had the lead and uh, we couldn't hold it. So that's the way it goes sometimes. And for people that don't know, Joe, what am I interviewing you about this time? Specifically, your brand new book, part two of an interview with Joe Keithley. Yeah, uh, Talk Minus Action Equals Zero is uh, the name of the new book. 
It's an illustrated history of DOA. And actually, in this past week, I got a tweet question for you, Joey. Sure. And it's from Reese. And Reese wondered, does Joe of DOA recall playing Y Cato University in Hamilton, New Zealand, with No Means No in the 1990s? And thanks for playing places other bands don't. Uh, well, I remember the New Zealand trip, but I don't remember that show specifically. We played about five shows down there. I remember the, being in Hamilton, and we just actually played there again about uh, two months ago in Hamilton. So uh, we had a look around at his fine town once again. Joe of DOA, who scanned all the pictures into your book? It's an incredible book filled with so many great pictures and scans and posters. Who scanned them all in? What a task! Yeah, uh, there was a, a few people involved. The, the bigger posters, uh, which you can't really tell from the book because it doesn't relate that way, obviously, right? Um, they had to send them out. You know, the posters, anything that was over, over two feet long or whatever type thing. Uh, but it was uh, the staff, uh, Robert and uh, Shiloh at uh, Arsenal Pulp Press. They look good, don't they? Amazing! I really love them, and it's a lot of work just to put that much stuff in a book. Like, that is tons and tons of scans, and they turned out really great. Like, they didn't have any of that moray sort of look to them. They were perfectly scanned in. Yeah, and the thing was, we also talked about um, the posters that were in terrible shape, you know, because some of them were, like, really old and beat up with holes in them or tape on them or they're... They've lost their coloration, uh, and there was some discussion about having, like restoring them so they looked original. I said, no, no, let's just do them as they are. So some of the posters were in great shape and some were in, you know, barely holding together, right? So uh, we just did them as they were. Joe, in your book, Talk Minus Action Equals Zero, there's a whole bunch of posters, as I mentioned, playing with a lot of Euro bands, specifically English bands. What was it like playing with English bands like the Banshees or the Clash or Pill? Did all of their roadies have rock star attitudes? I don't mean the bands, but didn't the roadies have a lot of rock star attitudes for the English bands? You know, I don't remember it being that bad. Um... As far as I can recollect, because there was a the, the clash, like we played with them another time. Uh, I, I actually worked on the just worked on the show setting up, and then there was at the Carisdale Arena, and the show was sold out. So uh, what we would do once the show was going, we would go around. Kids would be on the outside trying to get in. We'd go open the door of uh, the the arena and let about thirty, forty kids run in. And we'd tell the last guy, "Don't let the door slam because the security will throw you out." But uh, I think the, the people with the, the Clash, uh, Roadies, and the crew on um, that particular show were actually totally cool with it. They didn't care. The place was sold out. Um, but we didn't really have, really have a bad treatment from uh, those people, though. Joe, what about the Banshees, though? You did a show with them in San Francisco, right? Yeah, we did. It was a really good show. I remember our manager, Ken Luster, at the time uh, going like, uh, he. It, it was really odd because we played, and we did really well. It was maybe about, I don't know, 1,500 people at the show or something like that, and... Uh, um, but then they waited about an hour after we finished playing, and uh, Ken was like, he was sort of gleeful, that, and he was going, oh, they're afraid to come on after DOA, but it's been my experience over the years that sometimes bands just go on when they want to go on. <laughs> you know what I mean? They go like, they, they, sometimes bands have bad attitudes, and they just go like, oh, we'll just, you know, it's kind of like Marie, Marie Antoinette, you know, let them wait, let them eat cake, and that kind of thing, right? So... Joe, in Talk Minus Action Equals Zero, there's a great picture of you burning a cross on stage with people's back to 
turned to you, not even noticing. What's going on there? Did you even notice the cross burning? I yeah, uh, I'm trying to think where that picture is from. I can't remember exactly. Uh, that sometimes it wasn't because I'd be burning, and then somebody would be totally distracted. I remember this one kid in. Uh, we were playing a show. The only time we ever played in Westminster, British Columbia, and I set the cross on fire. And uh, you know, the, the, the silver cross made out of cardboard and drumstick uh, with the silver gaff tape. And so, with newspaper, you have it burning. And this kid was so into the show, and he had long hair uh, that I lit his hair on fire at the front of the stage by accident. Right. So then I was going, "Oh my God!" Right. And then uh, we, uh, me and the roadie, grabbed our beers and started dousing the kid with beer. And he was so oblivious, and then he was, like, sort of mortally afraid, like, why are the band throwing beer at me, right? But we doused the fire out before he lost all his hair. Joe, how many last show evers have there been for DOA? Really only, like, two. Uh, that was, only like, in 1990, we did one, I think, December 1st, and then uh, at the Commodore, and then again December 13th at the Commodore the same year. Um, but we have never announced uh, any of our shows as being the last show. That was the only time. What about at the Smiling Buddha, Joe of DOA? We're speaking here to Joe Keithley of DOA, part two of my Nardwarta Human Serviette interview with Joey from DOA, celebrating the relief, release of his brand new book, Talk Minus Action Equals Zero. In Vancouver, there's a special release date for the book, isn't there, Joey, coming up on yeah, June the 4th at the rickshaw? Yeah, that's right, with the Jolts and uh, Knucklehead and uh, Rich Hope. Joe, DOA did the last show ever at the last legendary punk venue in Vancouver at the time, the Smiling Buddha. What was the Buddha like at the very, very, very oh, end? Oh, that was unbelievable. That was like about 1986 or 87, because I remember it was like Wimpy, John Card, uh, it might have been like 88, actually, because uh, I think Chris Proholm was playing guitar at that point, and Dave Gregg was gone. And so we build it as a uh, return to the scene of the crime. And uh, we got down there and, uh, you know, the, the place, I mean, the place was run down when we started playing there in like 1978. Uh, but 10 years later was way more run down. Uh, and, you know, so say in the back room, uh, Robbie Jeer, who was the son of uh, Lashman and Nancy, the people that ran the Buddha, uh, he said, oh, you can use the kitchen here as a dressing room, just like the old days. And there was a, we looked up, and one of those ceiling uh, air conditioning things or circulation vents had like a dead pigeon that had been caught in the fan and was just hanging there with its uh, poor corpse uh, decomposing. And uh, we sort of said to Robbie, the new owner, uh, aren't you going to do anything about that? And he went, oh, why the hell should I? Right? So that was kind of the state of it, right? So it was in pretty rough shape, and I think, you know, hardly anybody showed up to the show. Nobody wanted to go there anymore, and we kind of went like, well, I guess it's really over. And in Vancouver, punk historians can actually still see bits of the Buddha, can't they? Like, if you go to the back alley, there's still some spray-painted scissors stuff on the walls there. Yeah, the scissors had the great symbol, like um, a pair of scissors, obviously, and uh, they spray-painted everywhere when they were, like, going to, you know, 80, 81. And the the building's still still there, 109 East Hastings, and um, it's... You know, there's nothing in it. Like, it's not being used or anything like that. And uh, for people not familiar, it's in a really depressed area of Vancouver, not far from Maine and Hastings. And uh, you know what? We had talked about a couple years ago, Randy uh, Rampage and I had joked that uh, we should uh, get the old DOA van, the Reed Fleming, and we would take people on a tour of the old haunts of Vancouver and have a cooler full of beer, and me and Randy would uh, regale them with tales of... uh, 
punk rock of old, and one of the stops would be the alley behind the Buddha, as you mentioned. That would be really great if you did that. I mean, they have hip-hop tours. Why not a DOA tour? Yeah, I heard that John from uh, the Cro-Mags was giving, like, the, the hardcore tour of uh, New York. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, why not? Who knows? So I'll get some time to do it. Chuck Biscuits, your old drummer in DOA, was advertised for your 20th reunion. Did he ever show up for your 20th reunion? He did not. Unfortunately, we put him on the poster, then we couldn't get him there. Like I think we pretty well had everybody... Um, I'm trying to think. I don't think Dave was there either, unfortunately. But we had uh, Wimpy and uh, John Card and uh, Chris Prohom and uh, you know, and anybody that was still alive, obviously, right? I did, you know, uh, rest their souls, uh, Ken Jensen and Dimwit, uh, Simon Wild. Um, yeah, no, Chuck did not make that show. There's a great movie out called thepunkmovie.com, or Bloody Butt Unbowed. People can check it out at thepunkmovie.com by Suzanne Tabata. What did you think of the movie that took your name? Because it's almost like a history of DOA. Yeah, it's a good history of uh, the early days in Vancouver, you know, circa like uh, 78 to 82, around there. And uh, um that, that was fine, because uh, I think that's a good good expression. That's an old DOA album, Bloody But Unbowed, like was a comp of the first two DOA albums. And, uh, um, yeah, and it, the movie gives a, a reasonable explanation about what, what was going on, right? So I don't mind them using the title. That was fine. And there's some great clips on the website, thepunkmovie.com, that people can check out that aren't actually in the movie. Why was Chuck Biscuits blocked out in the movie? Like he has bars over his face in the movie. Yeah, well, he said, uh, and I, I didn't really have anything to do with this, although I, I got wind of what was going on, um, that he, his music uh, had been licensed out because he was part of DOA, so we had an agreement uh, for this that you know the, the clips should be, could be shown and especially the music could be heard. But then uh, he got mad and he didn't want to be part of it, and he said, I stole my uh, likeness and image, so you can't use it. So you can see him drumming with DOA, but you can't see his face. So I, it was, um, I don't know, what's the right word, petty? Chuck was in like about three bands in one night, wasn't he? Did he ever drum in three bands in one night, like with DOA, The Circle Jerks, and Black Flag all in one night? No, not to my recollection. I mean, obviously Chuck was uh, in those three bands, and he was in Danzig uh, as well, um, uh, and Social Distortion later on. That was uh, the pretty well the last band he played in, you know, that, and that was maybe like, what, eight, ten years ago or whatever, something like that. And uh, uh, No, I never saw anything like that. Did you ever see him? That sound like that would have been a great night, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, I, that's what I heard the legend was, that he played like in yeah, DOA, no, Circle Jerks. and at all. I don't think they were even two of the three played uh, together. Like, I'm, not, I'm not sure about the Black Flag Circle Jerk combo. I don't think so, because there, there was sort of a bit of a bad blood at the time between Keith... Uh, of the jerks and uh, what was uh, Black Flag at the time. So I kind of doubt that happened too. Joe Keithley of DOA, and we're speaking here to Joe Keithley from DOA on the Nardwarty Human Serviette Radio Show. Joe has a brand new book out, Talk Minus Action Equals Zero, an illustrated history of DOA. And Joe, did Chuck Biscuits ever play with Danzig with DOA, i.e., was there a DOA Danzig gig ever? And did you ever see Chuck play in Danzig? No, uh, no to the last question. I never saw. I, I never saw Danzig except for the one time we played uh, 
at the New Music Seminar in New York. I think it was at the end of 1986 or possibly early 87. And uh, uh, there was a big place called The Ritz, and that was the bill. It was Danzig, DOA, and uh, <clears throat> I want to say maybe Red Cross, something like that, and maybe uh, Firehose. And it was a big, like a big show, you know, two, 3,000 people or whatever. And uh, But no, that, uh, Chuck was just in uh, DOA. No, I was Chuck playing in Danzig. Yeah, he was in Danzig at that time. That's right, yeah. But he didn't play in DOA. Speaking of New York shows with Chuck Biscuits, he drummed over Bad Brains at one time? Well, no, actually, there's the story. Uh, um, you'll see in the book there's a purple poster. Uh, and uh, The headline band is called uh, Terrorist, I think. And then DOA's in the middle, and then Bad, Brain was, uh, Bad Brains were openers or something like that. They were just getting started, obviously, right? And... Um, uh, what happened, there was a curtain just behind the stage. It wasn't really a separate room. And uh, uh, I think the opening band, or maybe even the headline band, I can't remember, but the Chuck set his drums up behind this curtain and started warming up as they were playing. And, of course, he paid no attention to what they were playing, so it wasn't like he reinforced the beat. He played something totally different, and this, like, uh, totally threw the band off and kind of ended their set. I love that. This one of the many great stories. <laughs> it was bizarre. I couldn't figure it out. I was kind of go. I mean, I laughed, and then afterwards, I kind of like, oh, that, that was kind of too bad in a way, right? Yeah. Sabotage for DOA, it was, it was, right? It, it was sort of sabotage. I don't think you liked them, put it that way. And lastly, you're just a little bit about Chuck Biscuits, one of the original drummers of DOA. Was Chuck the original drummer in DOA? Yes. Um, I... Randy came and tried out as a drummer, um, and he was okay, uh, like a lefty drummer, and uh, I mean left-handed. Uh, and but I didn't think it was really really sparkling. You know, think I have been think about this. I've been playing with Dimwit and the Skulls, and Dimwit was like really really sharp, right? Like Chuck's older brother. So I conceived that Randy obviously had rhythm and a sense of timing, and uh, so I taught him to play bass. And then um, I saw Chuck playing with. Um, Chuck went to try out. He'd been playing with the Victorian Pork. And then uh, we'd say one practice, and we went, okay, that's great. That's the band right there. Chuck's the drummer. So he was the first drummer, yeah. How is Chuck these days? There was that rumor a little while ago that he was dead, but then it was a fake death. How is Chuck doing? Um, you know what? I don't really talk to him that much. I get an email from him about maybe once a year or something like that. And, uh, um, yeah, there was a rumor going around that I was dead, and I started getting, like, condolence emails, you know, as, as he being, like, a, a former bandmate and uh, a friend and stuff like that. And uh, it, it was weird, and then uh, we couldn't figure out what was, what was happening. I phoned his brother Bob, and uh, finally Bob drove down to uh, the Seattle area where Chuck lives and uh, found Chuck, and he was uh, very much alive. So, it was, yeah, it was a weird thing, right, now yeah, for sure. Now, Chuck's brother, Dimwit, sadly died away in yeah. the mid-'90s. Is there a park bench in memory of Dimwit somewhere? You know what? I totally forgotten about it. There was talk of that happening, but I don't know what happened with it. So if there is, I, you know what? I do not know the location, which is too bad. I think about Dimwit all the time. It's like, uh, uh, like the four of us, uh, Jerry Hanna and Brian Goble uh, from the Subhumans, uh, and Dimwit and I all grew up together on Burnaby Mountain. So uh, it was like the four amigos. And, uh, yeah, I... We had talked about that at the time at the wake. We had the wake uh, for Dimwit at the railway club here in Vancouver. And, uh, I, you know, no one, I don't know. It would be great if there was. It would be a great thing yeah, to add to your so DOA too. tour. Like, like the thing, Dimwit was um, a real talent. And uh, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, 
a really odd sense of humor, sometimes a horrible sense of humor, but still like a really great guy. Joe, speaking of Seattle, Washington, heading down to Seattle, the border, the Peace Arch, you did a gig at the Peace Arch? Yeah, it was a thing uh, like in, uh, I think this was like in 04, I want to say, 03, 04. And, but 50 years previously, in 1953, Paul Robeson, uh, for your listeners, was a really spectacular singer, um, like a, one of the greatest singers of his time. Uh, and, uh, but it was during the McCarthyism era, right, when they were like uh, witch hunting everybody who had any affiliation with the Socialist or Communist Party in the United States. And uh, Paul Robeson said he was a, a communist. So it's kind of bizarre that uh, what they did, they took away his passport so he couldn't go play outside the United States. And then they pretty well put the kibosh on, uh, uh, or the kibosh on his uh, career in the United States by limiting his records and performances. So labor unions in, uh, in the B.C. area, in Vancouver, uh, they set up a concert and about 50,000 people showed up, something like that. Between 30 and 50 is what I've heard. And uh, Paul, they set the stage on the American side, and uh, Paul Robeson sang there to this big, huge crowd on the border. So 50 years later, they had a commemoration of this uh, big event uh, in 04 uh, at the border, and they set the big stage, and you know, about 5,000 people showed up, something like that. And then uh, it was a big honor for me, because like, Paul's best-known song uh, was uh, Old Man River. So, and... Uh, so they selected me to sing that, and I sang that uh, a cappella, and a whole bunch of other people played that day. It was a, a great event. No, I think there's a set list from that gig in your book, Talk Minus Action Equals Zero. Yeah. And on it, Danny Glover is written. Was Danny Glover there? Yeah, he was speaking. Danny Glover's, like, uh, obviously a well-known actor, but, like, uh, an activist, too, right? Like, uh, a left-wing activist, uh, which is really cool when... Uh, you get people in the different arts, uh, you know, they care about stuff, you know. It's like, so it was, you know, anti-war sentiment but it was a lot to do with this, what was going on with this event. And, uh, you know, of course, the, the Iraq war was going to full tilt at that time, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, Dan Glover was there speaking, and then, uh, yeah, we got his signature, so that was pretty cool. Joey, with all the tours you've done over the years in DOA, there's always been some interesting little side notes. One of them, as parlayed in your book, is the 1998 tour where you phoned ahead to local promoters and asked for local drummers to fill in at a moment's <laughs> notice. Yeah, that, that was really bizarre. We were like, uh, Brian O'Brien was the drummer at the time, and uh, we were playing soccer, and he really hurt his uh, sciatic nerve. And so then he was getting bad, and we were on tour with Zeke for about 40 shows around the United States that summer. I guess it was 99, I think, and, um, or maybe 98. 98. And uh, what happened about halfway through the show in Green Bay, um, that he couldn't play at all, right? He was really injured, but I, would already had, I had already talked to Donnie Paycheck, of, uh, the drummer from Zeke, uh, just to be on standby, come up and drum, and uh, uh, Brian was... He couldn't stand or sit. His back was so bad. So Donnie ran up, finished the set, and then uh, Donnie did it. We flew Brian back to Vancouver, and Donnie did about the next four shows with us. And then Zeke had to head back out towards the New York area, and we were going back west uh, to Vancouver. So in Missoula, Montana, Spokane, Washington, and um, Salt Lake City, I phoned ahead uh, and said, hey, get me your best punk rock, get the best punk rock drummer in town, and they'll drum with DOA at the at our show there in a few days. So at the sound check, what we did was uh, we'd go through the entire set 
and um, that we were going to play that night, and you know, give them a few heads up. You know, and they have a set list, and they could make a few notes. You know, fast song, song, slow song, whatever that type of thing. And uh, <clears throat> we only had really one rule. We said, me and Kuba, the bass player, we said, okay, whatever you do, don't stop until Joe lifts his guitar up and then puts it down. That's the end of the song. So that's sort of the DOA tradition. Like I, when I make the cue with the guitar, okay. You end on the downbeat, you know, or the end on the beat, right? So, and, uh, but it's really funny. Some guys forgot that cue and they would keep drumming, and me and Kuba would keep waving our guitar next time to try. And, so, you had some extended versions of like, uh, The Prisoner and, uh, Fucked Up Ronnie and, uh, uh, the enemy and stuff like that. They just keep going. They're having such a good time playing it. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> you know, I, I, I got to tell you and your listeners that uh, I felt like the Chuck Berry of punk rock because Chuck Berry's really famous for just showing up in town and expecting everybody to know the numbers and start playing. In your book, Talk Minus Action Equals Zero, Joey, so many great little artifacts, including Stone Crazy tour dates. Your first band, Stone Crazy, and Stone Crazy played the Biltmore here in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, which now is a venue again. Some would almost say a punk rock venue all over again. What was it like playing the Biltmore back then? You know what? I think that uh, that tour schedule that you see there... Um, half the dates on were fictitious. Uh, what we did, we did. You know, I think we had played at. Um, uh, there's a high school over by uh, 28th and um, uh, Clark. I forget which one it is. Uh, Gladstone. We had played at Gladstone, and we played this outdoor thing at the Mount Pleasant Community Center, and that was the extent of our gig. So what we did is, uh, me and Dimwick conceived that okay, we need a tour schedule. So we got some experience, so we made this kind of fake tour schedule with these bars in the hopes that we'd get hired at other bars, showing, oh, yeah, these guys can handle a show. They've done this. They've done that, right? You know, and, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, you can see it. And then we have um, our fictitious stage names. I think mine was uh, Colonel Sanders, as in the uh, KFC fame. In your book, Joey, was it all your own material? For instance, there's a poster, The Avengers at Japanese Hall. I've never seen that picture or the picture of The Avengers at Japanese Hall. I don't know. Where did you get that? And is all the stuff pretty much from your own collection? Yeah, everything in the book except for the. there's a couple of things on the Ramones, which uh, we put open for them at the EMU in uh, um, Eugene, Oregon. We did three shows with them down the West Coast that trip. And... Uh, that, and then the, there's a couple of references to The Clash, right? There's a ticket uh, we'd open for them at the at the gardens in Vancouver. And uh, for some reason, I couldn't find anything like that. And they were like two of my favorite bands of all time. So, But we really wanted to include that. So we just searched on the on the Internet and found that and, you know, and put it in the book. But every, pretty well everything else was in, in one of these like 14 or 15 boxes of uh, stuff that I had uh, stored in my basement. Joey, also in the book, Talk Minus Action Equals Zero, an illustrated history of DOA, is an alternate version of the cover of Let's Wreck the Party. It's like a cartoon by Sean Carey. Yeah, the Sean was uh, an illustrator, uh, rest your soul, she's not uh, with us anymore. Uh, and she used to draw um, like uh, comics for like uh, Playboy and uh, Hustler and stuff like that. So it had kind of that real uh, a good graphic style. And uh, she's famous for the Circle Jerks mascot, isn't she? That skank kid. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So we met her like when we were doing um, War in '45, right? And uh, 
So we told her about this album concept, Let's Wreck the Party, and she sketched out these things. And uh, you can see the illustration, her hand drawing, like it's just a black and white pencil thing. And, uh, you know, because we told her, like, okay, this is what's happening. There's a party, and then um, it's very sedate, and then DOA comes in, widens it up, and, and wrecks the party. And that, when you see the American version of Let's Wreck the Party, it's not quite like that, but it's a little bit akin to it. I think it's really great, though. Was there any chance you might have actually used it? You know what? I can't remember. I, I totally forgot that I had that, and I actually wasn't even looking for stuff for the book, but I, uh, I've i got this big, flat box of, like, uh, old, um, like, art separations for, like, albums, you know, from all the stuff from the 70s and 80s, and the first album, second album, all that, kind of, that kind of stuff. I have all the original artwork that was sent to the printer, and so I was flipping through it and kind of consolidating the stuff as I was, you know, basically uh, making the book was kind of a make work project that um, it allowed me to clean up my basement and get some of the stuff organized. So it, it was twofold, right? So. And we have a caller right now. Caller, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Who are you, caller? My name is Mike Palm. I'm the guitar player, singer of Agent Orange. Good afternoon. Hello, Mike. Welcome to the Nardwarda Human Serviette Radio Show. You're live on the air. Thank you, sir. And believe it or not, Mike, you were live on the air also with Joe Keithley from DOA. He's also on the show today. Hi, Mike. How you doing? Yeah. Joey. How's it going? It's going? going good. You remember uh, um, Agent Orange and DOA and Youth Brigade, we put, put, last summer we played at this thing called Skatopia in uh, southern Skatopia, Ohio. Skatopia, yeah. Yeah, that was the last time we saw you. Yeah, and that it was a crazy. Uh, this was hillbilly country all the way. It was right on the the river, uh, the river by um, that splits Ohio and West Virginia, and it was like it was like about 110 degrees out, and uh, the most disorganized thing I think I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> and Mike Joey is on a Nardwarty Human Serviette show here today, talking about his brand new book. Talk minus action equals zero, an illustrated history of DOA. And I was going to ask you, just first, right off the bat, just quickly, Mike, what do you remember about DOA? Would you like to take a look in Joey's book? Because you're in it. Oh, my. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I just remember coming up and playing shows back in the day. And I don't know, mainly... Uh, Seems like usually we play together mostly in Europe. Yeah, well, I think we played uh, at that place, uh, Seidel, which is in uh, Luzon. It's always uh, Seidel on my birthday. What, what's up with that? Yeah, I, I, you, you, that was your birthday. Yeah, yeah. That place is, uh, that's a great place. It was a kid's reformatory, um, like a juvie, that they turned into a music venue. It's pretty cool. In Joey's book as well, Mike, there's a mention of the Circle One gang who are from Orange County. And Joey, the Circle One gang stole some of your T-shirts at one time? Yeah, we actually did a show with, uh, it was, um, got a, I can't remember who the, the first two bands were, but it was like DOA and Black Flag at the Ukrainian Hall on, uh, I'm thinking on Santa Monica or something like that in Hollywood. Uh, and... Um, Anyways, uh, what happened, these guys from the gang, they came in, they, they punched their way into the door, and then they grabbed... Uh, uh, Mike, who was the guy who did the, the, uh, the, the merch selling for Black Flag? Starts with an M. Uh, I'm trying to think of the guy's name. Mugger? Uh, no, it was not Mugger. Merrill. Merrill. 
And uh, Merrill, I don't remember that guy. He was Black Flags Booker. Yeah, but he sold shirts for him too. Like Mugger was a roadie, and then Merrill did uh, merchandising. And these guys. I, went okay, to... I got to tell you, Joey, I'm having a hard time hearing you because we're driving in the van. But, oh, okay, um, sorry. Okay. Did you say where did you say that show was? It was at the Ukrainian Hall in Hollywood, about 1981 or 82. The Ukrainian Hall. The Ukrainian Hall. Oh, man. I'm, the Hall shows were always crazy because there's never any security or anything, you know? Yeah. And yeah, so, uh, that, but uh, uh, Nardwar, he can't really hear me too much, but I'll let you talk to Mike and uh, tell him uh, I won't be in town. Unfortunately, I'm leaving tonight, but tell him to have a great show at the rickshaw, uh, which Agent Orange will be at the rickshaw on Monday. All right. Well, thanks so much, Joe, yeah. for phoning into the Nardwar to Human Serviette Radio Show. Anything, Mike, you'd like to say to Joey at all before we let Joey go? Joey, I hope we cross paths again soon. Yeah. Well, yeah. Definitely, we'll see. You. Well, we'll probably do some shows down in California soon. I think. I can't wait to check out the book. I'm going to check it out right away. Okay. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Joe, and do do the loot do. Do-do. And you're still listening to the Nardwar to Human Serviette Radio Show. And welcome, Mike, to the Nardwar to Human Serviette Radio Show. Thank you, sir. And you are coming with Agent Orange to Vancouver this Monday night to the Rickshaw in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Now, Mike, who is in Agent Orange right now? Uh, right now, uh, it's Mr. Perry Giadano. Perry G on bass and vocals. And the drummer these days is Dave Klein, who some of you may know from the Ghastly Ones, Bomboras. And I thought it's quite... I thought it's... Mummies, Invisible Men, Seeds, and... Is that it? Bon Jovi. Yes, Dave Klein on drums for two years now. And Mike, I thought it's quite interesting that your cousin was in the original Safaris. Your cousin was in the original Safaris, a surf band. That's correct. And they had he a bass. He's a bass player, Mr. Jim Tran. Now they had a song called Bombora, and Dave was in the Bomboras. This stuff happens all day long. The coincidences never stop. Had you seen the Bomboras much before you met Dave? Wow, that's hard to say. You know, I mean, I'm living in San Diego now, and back then, I was going out to shows every night when I was living in L.A., so I had just seen the Bomboras, you know, a hundred times, you know? Mike, with your connection to surf gods like the Bomboras or the original Safaris, you have a direct connection to Dick Dale right now? One of your bandmates plays with Dick Dale? Yeah, actually, Dick Dale actually played with, uh, ended up having my drummer and my bass player, which is fine. You know, uh, Sam uh, played bass with H. Orange and Dick Dale for a little while. I right, get that backwards. But yeah. <laughs> What's, uh, it, what's it like having a conversation with Dick Dale in the 21st century? I talked to him in the 20th century, and you would ask him a question, and he would go on for 45 minutes straight with an answer. Have you had many conversations at all with Dick Dale, Mike, from Agent Orange? I have, and yeah, I actually, um, I think Dick's kind of mellowed out a little. Like, you know, he's kind of, I think he's having a, a better time out on the road these days than he, than he was back then, you know, and... Um, you know, things to be, seem to be going pretty good. I haven't seen him uh, 
perform recently. You know, he's had some health issues. So um, any shows he's been doing, he's also been doing uh, acoustic shows with just him and his son, Jimmy, on acoustic guitars. So he's been doing some different things lately. Um, you know, uh, Dick Dale, a true legend, and he just keeps doing things different, you know? And you never know. I mean, any tour nowadays could be his last. So uh, I actually seriously considering my next opportunity. I want to try and catch one of his shows, you know? Mike, what cover songs have you done in Agent Orange? And what cover songs are you doing now? For instance, you guys, I think, covered the Bel Airs. Have you ever met the Bel Airs? Have you met any other legendary surf bands from California? Oh, yeah. Um, actually, Paul Johnson is a good friend, and he lived in Carlsbad for a couple of years when I first moved down there. And I'd see him, you know, couple times a week if not, I mean especially on weekends um, doing little local shows uh, with my side project that had a surf band called the Dioras and uh, Paul would get up and play you know a few songs with us you know every once in a while and then he moved up to Santa Barbara so I don't see him as often but great guy fantastic guitar player always doing you know, now he's playing with the Surfaris at this time and uh, so yeah he's, he's a good guy and still out there playing lots of shows and staying busy it's great did Agent Orange ever play with John and the Night Riders? And you have John and the Night Riders' book, his illustrated surf guitar book. I do have that book. Uh, of course, it's tucked away somewhere. I haven't seen it in a little while. But, uh, you know, um, I'm trying to remember if we ever actually played with John and the Night Riders. Now, I did play bass with a uh, South Bay surf band called the Halibuts for a little while. And I did play some shows with John. Uh, so, you know, it seems like uh, we must have played together at some point, but I just remember going to see them play, maybe not playing together as much, really. Oddly enough, it seemed like it would be a really good bill. We probably should have done it more often if we didn't do it at all. <laughs> and if people want a really good bill, they should check out this Monday night in Vancouver at the Rickshaw Theatre. We're speaking here live to Mike from Agent Orange, who are playing Vancouver this Monday at the Rickshaw Going way back, Mike, from Agent Orange, The Mask. Did you ever play The Mask or go to The Mask, the legendary punk club in L.A.? Uh, you know, I, I had a little trouble getting up there because being from Orange County, it, it was kind of, you know, uh, I didn't have a car, so uh, I made numerous attempts. Um, and it seemed like every time I went, you know, the, the doors would be locked and we'd just kind of hang out in the stinky alley there and couldn't get in, so... I actually never got inside of the mask. I tried many times, but uh, never did get in there. Even after, I guess, in the last few years, they had a, some sort of mass reunion show, I think, but they opened it up and at least let people walk through it. Or I don't know whether they had bands play or not, but um, I guess at some point there was a last hurrah there. Missed it that time, too. <laughs> what was That's part of the fun of being in a band, Nardwar, is, you know, if something interesting is going on around town, half the time you're off playing someplace else, you know? And you're in a band. What was the attitude for L.A. or Orange County punks regarding playing? Because I had heard that the Weirdos were the first band that wanted the mask to charge. Like, the mask was free, and then the Weirdos want to charge money. How did that all come together? Like, paying for punk rock. What do you think about paying to get into a gig? You know, to me, it always seemed like the ticket prices were so low. It wasn't like anybody was really making a lot of money. And as we were speaking with, you know, I think Joey was talking about one of the halls down, downtown. There was Basis Hall, and there was all kinds of different places. And 
people would just throw shows and put them on. And if you saw the flyers for those shows now, you'd be amazed how many great bands would play in one night. And the ticket was cheap. It was always really cheap. It wasn't like everybody was making a lot of money off of it. They are just trying to create a scene and uh, just rent halls out on their own and do these things. No security or, you know, hardly ever any lighting. <laughs> so... Mike, are you still there? Oh, yes. Oh, Mike, I was just going to... And you're full, Actually, where are you speaking to us right now from? Where are you right now? Uh, we just passed through Klamath Falls. On the way to... We're somewhere on Oregon, on our way to Portland. And then on to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. We're speaking to Mike from Agent We're Orange. We're coming up. If any We're quest- on our way. If anybody has any questions for Mike, it's 604-822-2487, 604-UBC-CITR. If you have any questions for Mike, from Agent Orange, back to Orange County for a moment. I mentioned to Joey the Circle One Gang. What do you remember about the Circle One Gang? Uh, you know, I think that's part of the time, to be totally honest, for me, when uh, the whole punk rock scene, uh, especially like the L.A., a hardcore scene, it really kind of got out of control, I think, you know, and I mean, a lot of really bad things happen at shows like the Olympic Auditorium and, you know, just senseless violence, really, and I think uh, a lot of the club owners picked up on it, and it made it hard for bands like us to to keep playing, like, some of the clubs that we like to play up in L.A., for instance. Um, You know, I mean, there were tough times. Things got out of control. Now, those guys I remember mainly from, you know, shows at uh, places like the Fleetwood in Hermosa Beach, but they're from Long Beach, pretty much. I know they hung around with TSOL. Uh, Those guys sort of knew each other, but um, other than seeing them around at shows like that, I don't think they really came to our shows too much, and so I really didn't know those guys too well. Long Beach is a little ways away from Fullerton, a little bit of separation there, although I did spend a lot of time in Huntington Beach, which thankfully was sort of a separate scene, you know? So, uh, yeah, you know, is a notorious bunch of guys, you know. <laughs> Mike from Agent Orange, did you ever get hassled at all because you had parts in your hair? I heard you guys say you had parts in your hair and you got hassled because of that. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny looking at those old pictures of the band, you know, but that's, that's how it was back in the day, you know. Who were you hassled by by having a part in your hair? Uh, it's just so hard to explain. No one, no one you know, I mean, uh, we've come so far from that whole scene, you know. It's just, uh, it's hard to imagine how it really was, but, you know, it's hard being a trailblazer, you know what I mean? Well, speaking of hair and stuff, did Agent Orange ever do any gigs with metal bands? I heard of a legendary metal gig with the Circle Jerks and Motley Crue playing together. This happened to be on the same bill, and there was a rope in the venue to divide the punk fans on one side and the metal <laughs> fans on the other side so they wouldn't fight each other. That's, you know, I think I remember hearing about that show, too. I don't know if that ever actually did happen or if that's urban legend, but you know what? That's a great story either way. Did you play? With I wish it? I had one to tell about Agent Orange like that, but I think uh, probably the closest I could say would be to we were unfortunately signed to the same record label as Poison, and uh, I don't remember actually ever playing together with them. But you know, I think the association alone is is uh, worth considering. Well, when you're signed to a record label like that, sometimes you can go into vaults, you can get free merchandise and stuff. Your brother worked at the Fender plant. Did you ever get to go in the archives of the Fender plant and, like, get reverb units or anything like that? Like, go into the back rooms? 
Well, I don't know if I should be telling this story or not, but I'll tell you something. Back before they initiated a security policy at the fender plant, guys were walking out of there with speakers with a wire tied between the two of them so they could put two of them under each arm, put a jacket on, and walk out the front door. My brother knew a guy that had a whole garage full of Jensen speakers. He'd have a whole pallet shipped to his house. Everybody had all kinds of parts and stuff, amp parts. It's like that Johnny Cash song, One Piece at a Time, only it was all Fender stuff. How about from old surf bands? Did you ever get any reverb units from guys in old surf bands or anything like that? Well, I got my I got my showman speaker cabinet from Pete Curry from the Halibuts, and it, I believe the Halibuts are the longest-running surf band of all time. They have to be checked, but the ventures don't count because they're an instrumental band. And most of the other bands didn't stick together that long. So, anyhow, Pete Curry's speaker cabinet, uh, boy. Yeah, I don't think any of my other equipment came from any specific source, unfortunately. I did, however, I have held in my hands, which for me is the absolute holy grail. I have actually touched one of the guitars from the beach party movies that Dick Dale on the Deltones appeared in. Uh, in one of them, the band plays matching blue metallic sunburst Fender guitars. And one of them is a Jazzmaster, one of them is a Strat. And uh, a friend of mine actually owns that Jazzmaster. And uh, to me, that's, a, that's an amazing thing to see. That's a one-of-a-kind instrument that, you know, it's, it's very obvious when you see it from the film, you know. Well, you and Agent Orange, Mike, had your own experience with films as well. Weren't you in the movie Pale Blood in 1990 with Wings Hauser? I am impressed. That's a very obscure reference. That's fantastic. Have you actually seen it? No, I haven't. I just heard about it. What can you tell the people oh about Pale Blood 1990, Mike and Agent Orange? <laughs> yeah, that thing, I think you can find it someplace on maybe Laserdisc. And, uh, you know, it's a classic vampire film that uh, it's, the cheese factor is unbelievably high. It's must-see. How would you describe Agent Orange looking in that movie there, Mike, of Agent Orange? <laughs> you act like you've seen it. Like well, you're in a bar scene. Of- you're in a bar scene and it's kind of rainy or That's hazy. Correct. Well, the thing about it is, is they had, you know, a, a wardrobe director, and the scene actually called for the script set vampire bar band. So, when you get that together with the uh, wardrobe department, that's what you end up with. Now, it was funny, the day of the shoot, they were surprised when we showed up with a drum set with a blank drum head on it. They asked me why it didn't say Agent Orange, and I said, because the script says vampire bar band, not Agent Orange. So they got a guy out there with gaff tape, and he he wrote Agent Orange with tape on the drum head. And uh, that's how we went from being the the vampire bar band to uh, makeshift Agent Orange vampire bar band. (laughs) Well, it's great. Like, people a lot of times think of Agent Orange as being surf-influenced, and you are surf-influenced, but just to switch from surf-influenced to vampire bar band, that is awesome. Well, you know, there's always that connection with, you know, in the punk world, you know, I mean, the Damned were one of the first punk bands to really, you know, come through. And the whole spooky factor thing, it just goes hand in hand. It's, you know, there's never anything wrong with 
Spooky fun. Right, well, right on back to the cramps, too. Vampires, surf rock together, and right on back to your drummer, Dave, of Agent Orange, and also of the Bumboras. I think the Bumboras did a big tour with the cramps. Did you ever do any gigs with the cramps? Did Agent Orange and cramps ever play? My goodness, that's another good question. You know, it's funny. Uh, you know, you sort of, back in the day, first of all, you know, if we were playing together, most likely, you know, we're pretty busy trying to, you know, keep our own, own thing going on. And I guess you sort of would, take it for granted, you know, I mean, playing shows with different bands like that all the time, you know, sometimes I have to look back and, and, and see, like, did that really happen, you know, <laughs> I certainly saw the cramps enough times, it seems like we would have, must have played with them at some point. Vox Phantom, is that a Vox Phantom guitar that you're playing, or is that a variation of a Vox Phantom? Well, originally, I bought a Vox 12-string stereo Phantom. That was the first Phantom that I bought, and I played that on our second EP. Now, soon after I got that, I had the opportunity to buy a six-string version of the same guitar. And that guitar was in pieces when I got it. So its first uh, Frankenstein-ization was that it was put back together with a single Gibson bridge, a single Gibson pickup, and a single knob. And I played it like that for quite a while. And it's on the back of our Fan Club 7-inch with Shaken All Over and Secret Agent Man. And after that, I switched to a different guitar and put that thing away. Later on, I pulled it out, took it apart, painted it sky blue, and put two Fender Jaguar pickups on it. I played it like that for a little while, and I got bored of it. Took it apart again. I sold the Vox neck and ended up putting it all back together with a custom pickguard to turn it into a Stratocaster, essentially, routed it for the bridge. So the guitar is one-half Stratocaster and one-half Fox Phantom. It's a Fantocaster. Where did you originally get the Vox 12-string from? Guitar Center in Santa Ana. Where else? Wow. How lucky it is to be in California just to walk in and see that, because those are pretty rare, at least in these parts at that time. Well... That guitar specifically, the 12-string stereo, is an odd beast. It actually has 12 separate knobs, a separate tone and volume for each pair of strings on the 12-string set. So first of all, that's a lot of chrome. And uh, I got pretty lucky. Uh, someone saw it and thought of me. And I went in and played it, tried it out. And, you know, they had it in their vintage department, and it, they didn't really know anything about it. And they put it back up on the wall, and I kind of forgot about it until about a month later someone called me and told me they still had it. So what I did is I went over there at about 8.45 and I closed at 9 o'clock at night and I just kind of looked around at some other guitars, some old like 60s strats that would be like $12,000, you know, and I acted like I didn't know anything about guitars. And right about 9 o'clock when they were going to close, I said, how about that old piece of junk over there with all the knobs on it? I'll give you 300 bucks. <laughs> And that's how I ended up with the Vox Phantom. The guy had to make a last-minute sale at the end of the day. Awesome expert advice from Mike Palm from Agent Orange. And Agent Orange are coming to Vancouver, B.C., Canada this Monday night to the rickshaw in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Mike, were you guys the first punk band to have a skateboard? Wow. Probably. I can't think of anyone else unless it was JFA. 
uh, may have done that first. There were others, you know, skaters were, um, boy, I don't know. I mean, they had to be after us, but, hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. We, uh, we were the first to really um, make do a model with a known company at the time. So it was good that we had the distribution of a regular skateboard company, uh, you know, instead of just throwing them at shows or whatever. Uh, and our tie-in with that, too, was at that time, uh, you know, uh, skate videos were just becoming a big thing. So uh, we appeared in the Skate Visions skateboard video. It's one of the first videos originally made to be promote the skateboards in the skate shops. And uh, it just turned out to be right about that time when skateboarders were really in- interested in having, uh, you know, VHS tapes of whatever, these, these videos. And so it, it turned into a kind of a cult thing, you know, and probably kind of took off. And the connection with the skateboard worked out well. And the release of the, the new record at that time, it all tied in together. Uh, and plus, it's always good to have alternate transportation like the skateboard. Mike of Agent Orange, you, of course, have the song Bloodstains, the legendary song Bloodstains. Have you been sent out of courtesy any of the thousands of Bloodstains Across dot 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 compilations that are out there? Uh, Bloodstains Across. I haven't. I've seen a few of them around on vinyl, and that's something you know. Uh, it's maybe a um, it's a it's a gap in my collection. But uh, I do, however, have a copy of uh, There's a Bloodstains Comp that came out of Europe. That is, uh, I think it's at least 10 different versions all recorded by different bands. So it's all the same song all recorded by different bands. I'm proud of that one. When did you first notice the Bloodstains Across comps? I think it's awesome and I love the word awesome and of course awesome is associated with Agent Orange very much so Orange County, awesome. <laughs> Bloodstains, when did you first discover Bloodstains comps? Did it kind of freak you out? Because these are like great compilations of unheard rock and roll, punk rock and roll. Yeah, I didn't know what it was when I first found it, and I remember digging through. I mean, back in the day, there were some really good record swaps in Orange County in L.A., and, uh, you know, it would just be one of those days digging through vinyl, and it just popped up. Um, you know, they always seemed a little bit out of my price range. <laughs> Mike from Ancient Orange, did you ever get involved in the rap scene at all? For instance, the Fat Boys had the song Wipeout with the Beach Boys. Were you ever paired up with any rap bands? Nah, we tried to do that. We were wanted to do a version of uh, Free For All by Ted Nugent. But, you know, think of it in terms of, you know, uh, how they how they did the, uh, the Aerosmith uh, cover. Uh, sort of that treatment to it, but uh, we couldn't get Ted to commit. Mike, you tried to get in the mask. You didn't see any gigs there. Did you try to get in the decline movie, or were you in the decline movie at all, in the crowd at all? I think at that time we weren't really so concerned with, uh, you know, getting in the film. I think a lot of people around L.A. were sort of, you know, going out, hoping to catch a show or be into it, you know, get into a situation where they'd be in a scene somewhere. But, you know, we were so busy doing our own thing, and uh, I kind of just thought, like, we, we, we didn't really avoid it so much, but we didn't seek it out. So I kind of regret it. I think it's a, an, an interesting timepiece. It's always good to be part of something like that. And certainly uh, it was comprehensive in its coverage of what was going on in the area at that time. Um, and I, unfortunately, that the same goes for um, not only Penelope Spheres' masterpiece film, but also uh, photography of Mr. Ed Culver, who uh, was really kind of uh, along with... Uh, Glenn Friedman to some extent, 
Ed Culver really kind of was the whole image photographically of, of the L.A. scene at that time. And again, unfortunately, of all the shows that he went and photographed and all the shows that we played, he never shot the band live back in the day, unfortunately. How about nowadays? Has he had a chance to capture Agent Orange at all since? You know, that's very interesting. I, I, I was in touch with him because uh, a friend of mine lives in the brewery studio loft area. of the, It's an old brewery in Los Angeles. And uh, Ed did live there, and I see him around. He, he drive a, he had a Plymouth, uh, like, 67 sky blue hearse. Very interesting vehicle. Well, I, was, I always knew when Ed was around, you know, by his hearse parked out front. And I, I spoke to him recently. He's been having some uh, photo photo shows, different art galleries around town, and uh, he recently moved right over by Mr. Dave Klein in Highland Park. The drummer of the Bomb Boris and the drummer of Agent Orange coming to Vancouver, British Sir. Columbia, Canada this Monday to the Rickshaw Theatre. Mike of Agent Orange, I was also wondering about the mod scene. Were you into that mod scene, the Cavern Club at all? Uh, you know, there was another place, uh, oh, what was it called? What was that? What was the mod club in, in L.A. over on Sunset? The, uh, uh, there, there was a club. Yeah, I, I I didn't hang out at the cavern, but there was another place over on Sunset. It, it slips my mind right now. Um, I remember uh, you know playing shows there with uh, Untouchables and, and, and some of the other. Uh, the, there's a band called The Start. Uh, I actually played a second guitar for a little while in a band called Chardon Square, uh, and there was some other markets, mostly in um, Orange County. I would say is where we hung out at the time. Uh, the the bass player and drummer in the band at that time. They were into scooters, so they were part of that whole scene. Um, and we were sort of, at that point, putting together our whole, like, mod punk like thing, you know? So, yeah, back then, um, it was a good thing. And we actually played with the Untouchables recently on the Warp Tour, and they were fantastic. I never knew they were back together! I didn't either, but there they were, right in front of us. It was great. I thought it was so cool that they got on Stiff Records. Oh, man, you're joking. That's awesome. <laughs> Like, back in the day, they were on Stiff Records. If it ain't Stiff, it ain't worth a... Fuck. And you're still listening... <laughs> can you that? Well, you can now on the Nardwarty Human Serviette Radio Show on CITR, FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Winding up here with Mike Palm of Agent Orange, who's coming to Vancouver with Agent Orange this Monday night at the Rickshaw in Vancouver, BC, Canada. And Mike, your mom is Canadian? That's correct. And you also are friends with fellow Canadian Shane West's dad? <laughs> Wait a second. He's not really Canadian. He has sort of some allegiance to Canadian, I think, to Canada. I guess. But I, does, he get, does he get dual citizenship just for that? <laughs> I'm not sure. What's your connection to Shane West's dad? Well, Shane himself, uh, we've been kind of hanging around a little bit because uh, after they did the Germs movie, What We Do Is Secret, uh, the Germs were doing a, 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 some shows, and uh, we were doing some things together, some festival shows and some different things. So just uh, hanging out with the Germs and, and Shane, you know, singing with the Germs, uh, we got to be pretty good friends, and uh, it's it's really odd. I mean, now he's he's moved to Canada pretty much, and 
Uh, Nikita's gotten picked up for a second season, so uh, he's in L.A. right now. And We saw him uh, a couple weeks ago. We played a show in Echo Park, and uh, he's just come back from from uh, a cold winter of shooting up there. And But it looks like it's been picked up for a second season, so uh, he's still Canadian. <laughs> what do you remember about Ron Rays, the second singer of Black Flag and also drummer of Agent Orange, who now lives in Vancouver, B.C., Canada? That's right. Isn't his band playing with us? I don't think they're on the bill, unfortunately. Oh, really? Okay, originally that was the talk that was going on. You know, I don't remember Ron that well. Those days are pretty blurry, um, hanging around. Uh, you know, Black Flag had a place that was an old church in Hermosa Beach, and they converted it to have some different rehearsal rooms. And that's, you know, the, some of the footage from the uh, decline was shot there of uh, Chavo with his little uh, apartment there. And, and uh, I remember seeing those guys around, but there were always really big parties and, and lots of crazy things going on. So, uh, And coming up from Orange County also, you know, we really didn't know those guys. We just kind of went up there and, kind of hung out, so I don't know. Mike from Agent Orange, you guys went to Brazil, and I saw some footage of that on the internet. It looked really, really great. Do many bands oh. tour there, and is that all due to Enigma Records? Are they the ones that got you into Brazil? Hello, Mike, are you still there? Oh, I think you're breaking up a tiny bit, Mike. Hello, Mike. Are you still there on the Nardwater Human Serviette Radio Show? Live with Mike from Agent Orange. Hello, Mike from Agent Orange. If you can hear me, Mike, could you please phone back quickly to the Nardwar to Human Serviette Radio Show? Well, quickly, we'll wind this up very quickly. It's Nardwar to Human Serviette on the Nardwar to Human Serviette Radio Show, speaking to Mike from Agent Orange. And while we wait to connect with Mike from Agent Orange, and hopefully we do reconnect with Mike from Agent Orange, I will play some Agent Orange right here. Here is... Mr. Moto by Agent Orange on the Nardwarty Human Serviette Radio Show as we wait for Mike from Agent Orange to phone back. Radio. Hi, Nardo. I don't want to get your hopes up too high. Oh, no. Pig, uh, Ron Rays is playing because Ron Rays is in Piggy. And Piggy will be opening up for Agent Orange on Monday night. I'm not sure if they are or not. Oh, I heard that Piggy was playing. Well, I guess you'll have to just check the listings and we'll just cross our fingers and hope for I, that then. I will. Well, thanks for phoning in, Frank, and doot doot a loot do. Doot doot.
still listening to the Nardwarty Human Serviette Radio Show, and we have Mike back. Hello, Mike. Are you there? Yes, sir, I am. Yes, Mike, I'm back. Mike from Ancient Orange, and Mike, while we got cut off there, I played a couple tunes. Mr. Moto and also This House is Haunted. What can you say about This House is Haunted and Mr. Moto? Uh, well, Mr. Moto is an older one that uh, you know, is a uh, Bel Air's cover, so there's a there's, uh, my original connection to uh, Paul Johnson, right there. Uh, fantastic song, always goes over great live, great surf music, and then This House is Haunted is the most recent recording we've done, which is in quite a long time, uh, recorded at Mr. Dave Klein's uh, studio in Highland Park. And that's our latest release, uh, and it's a single, This House is Haunted. And to end right now... Mike from Agent Orange. I'm going to play something from your live LP on Restless Records. Do you remember Restless Records at all, Mike, from Agent Orange? Of course I do. Yes, that record was recorded live at the Roxy Theater in Hollywood. The Pandoras, who I interviewed years ago, were on Restless, and I remember them calling Restless Useless Records. <laughs> I'm sure there's a million stories that can be told about that label. Uh, the Pandoras, oh my God, Paula Pierce was just, you know, a dear friend. She, I miss her so much, and... You know, th- those were great times hanging out with bands like that. I mean, like, we did have to share the label with bands like Poison, but of course there was bands like the Pandora's also, and it, it made it all a, a much better scene. So I'm going to play, I'm going to try to play, if there's time here, Fire in the Rain, and it's in your head. Now, Fire in the Rain, when it begins, there's like a huge crowd noise. On the Restless release, did you have extra crowd noise? Because it sounds more like the Staples Center than the Roxy. <laughs> Well, all I'm going to say is we had a lot of fun recording that record, and we spent a lot of time in the studio at A&M with uh, a producer, Mr. Tom Penunzio, who uh, has a long list of credits uh, with uh, John Lennon, Iggy Pop. I mean, his list goes on and on. Uh, uh, it's, he, he's, he was really a lot of fun to work with, and if we're going to do a live record, I figured we might as well have fun with it. Yes, the crowd noise is so huge on Fire and Rain, and then also, it's in your I head. I believe they were over capacity that night at the Roxy. It's, a very, it's in your head. <laughs> Just a few thousand only. It's in your head. I keep saying it's in your head because I can't get out of that. My I can't get out of my head because there's a great drum solo in "It's in Your Head." Do you still do a drum solo in "It's in Your Head"? Does Dave Klein do a drum solo now? Oh, uh, you know, I actually completely forgot about the drum solo. That is uh, originally, yeah, that's the drum solo falling down the stairs. Or also, it can be thought of as uh, the, it's the music that they play in cartoons, like when a cartoon character has to build something quickly. That's what that drum solo is. So say a cartoon character has to build a house like in two seconds, 
that's the drum solo that goes with it. So after that, uh, that part's changed a few different times. We do it different live now, and uh, I can't even remember what happens. I guess we'll have to come to the show and see. So come on down to the rickshaw this Monday night to go see Agent Orange in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. So right now we are going to play Fire in the Rain by Agent Orange. Anything else you want to add to the people out there at all, Mike, from Agent Orange? Exceptional. I've had a great time coming up to Canada, and it's been a while since we've been in Vancouver. So I'm looking forward to this. I think it's going to be the highlight of the tour. So come on down and hang out with us. Come on down front and jump around. Have some fun. Well, thanks much, Mike. Keep on rocking in the free world and do do the loot do. Two bits. Thank you. Done, done. Got it. See ya. See ya. All right, live from the Roxy Theater in Hollywood, California. A Negro recording artist, Agent Orange. Right from the beginning, house began to form. We were all Fear the power of the storm We had lost our hopes We knew our dreams would still remain Because nothing is impossible And nothing burns like fire in the rain Fire in the rain Fire in the rain Lightning crack the sky No one that survived this era He would dare deny If fate had played its part There would be nothing to explain But was once a very tiny spark It's now a phasing fire
you're still listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Cable 88.5. Yes, it has changed. And the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. You just heard right there a little bit of Agent Orange with Fire in the Rain live from Restless Records. And right now on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show, we're joined by another caller. And let's just see right now. We hear the caller ringing. And hello, caller. Are you there? Hello, are you there? Hello, caller, are you there? Hello, hello, caller, are you there? Oh, we have no callers at the moment. I must have inadvertently dumped the caller. So, caller, please phone back. We're hoping to connect with Martin Creed, who is having an exhibition of his incredible artwork playing at the Rennie Collection. And here we have a caller right now, and this could be Martin. Hello, is this Martin? Hi. Sorry about that, Martin. You're now live on the air on hi. CITR. All right, hi. Who are you? Oh, I don't know. I, I don't know. I um, I don't feel like I know very much. It's confusing. Well, you are Martin Creed. And speaking of confusing, does anybody confuse you with the band Creed? Like, you are not the band Creed, are you? <laughs> I know. No, I'm not. And um, I don't believe in God. No, I'm not the band Creed. No, but my name is... uh, My second name is Creed. Yeah, and I did try to get uh, Creed.com, but that group have have got that website name. And you're a musician artist in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, with a couple things happening this weekend. What can you tell the people of what's going on this weekend and also for the next five months your artwork is going to be in this city and actually it'll probably forever be in this city because some of it's permanently in this city. Yeah, there's a, well there's a permanent work which is called Everything is Going to Be Alright um, which is a neon sign which is in, in the uh, uh, which is in the Wing Sang district um, on this uh, building, and you, you can see it from miles around. And uh, this weekend, I've got a show opening of various uh, visual works um, at the Rennie Collection. Uh, he's an art collector that has this kind of a it's a kind of a private museum, although it's open to the public um, on certain days of the week. And uh, People can register to go check out your exhibition for the next five months, May 26th to October 22nd, and that's at renniecollection.org, and that's R-E-N-N-I-E, collection.org. And that's opening next week, but right now, this weekend, there's a little private opening, right? Yeah, exactly. But then later on in the evening, your band is playing at 319 Main. Yeah, and that's... Uh that's kind of an after show, but it's also a charity event, I uh, I believe, which is um, you can get tickets for that, but the the t- but it's a, it's some kind of a benefit, um, uh, and I don't know how you get the tickets, but you kind of think it's online somewhere. Maybe if you go to the Rennie website, you could find those tickets. Yes, all the information is there at Rennie Collection dot. Yeah. Org. So, Martin, you are Martin Creed. You are in a rock and roll band. You do art. But right back to the very beginning, who is Joanna Robertson? <laughs> She's a friend of mine. Um, 
who I met once when I did a talk somewhere. And um, and, uh, and now that I've known her for a while, I don't know if she's my sister or my um, or my mother or my friend, but I feel close to her anyway, and she's an inspiration to me. She's an artist and a musician. Uh, she does paintings and music, um, and uh, and and that is what I think she is. And you were based out of England and Italy, but that's who I kind of know you, Martin Creed, through Joanna Robertson, even though I've never met Joanna Robertson, because I know Nick from the band Franz Ferdinand, and Joanna Robertson met Nick from Franz Ferdinand, and that's how you all guys met? Ah, exactly, that is how we met, yeah. And and, um, I met Nick through uh, Jo, because I call her Jo, and then... and uh, yeah, and um, and now Nick's been producing some uh, songs that I've been working on for a new album, which should be out next year, or or at the end of the year, or early next year. What is the name of your band, Martin? Is it Anawada? Uh, no, it isn't. No, that used to. I used to. That used to be the name of my band. But then, I um, I I thought that I just because doing. If all, doing all different things, I thought it was better just to use my name and um, not make up a name for anything. Because I think that um, names are uh, stupid. What did I see last night at the Vancouver East Cultural Centre, Martin, when your band played? What did I see? Who else is in the band? Oh, the- yeah. Well, the, the band is... Um, if there's five of us and um, there's uh, Keiko Owada on bass and there's Genevieve Murphy on synthesizer and Ben Kane on drums and Rob Eagle does uh, a mixture of um, like tambourine and uh, does the visuals because there's quite a lot of visuals that go with the songs um, and uh Aye, but the band has changed from time to time, you know, but that's the current band. Do you do many gigs like that where it's mixed with visuals? I love the visuals. For the people that didn't make it there last night, what were the videos? Like there was a guy throwing up. What made the guy throw up? And (laughs) what did he throw up? What did he throw up? (laughs) Well, he, I provided him with all the food and drink that he wanted to, to help him vomit. And uh, he and uh, there was a very there was a few people doing it, and we we had a big kind of dinner, kind of a party, and then when we had a studio downstairs where when people were ready to vomit, they would come down and we'd roll the cameras and and try to film them. Um, and uh, what were they eating? Anything they wanted, so you know things that they didn't like. And uh, they they drank quite a lot of alcohol. There was some one person was kind of had a sort of wheat allergy, so she was eating a lot of bread. And did you try to throw up at all just for fun to join <laughs> in the excitement? I wanted to, but it was too much for me to try to uh, work out from behind the camera how to do it all. Um, but when I when I do shows like last night, you know, it was a mixture of music and talk and films and. Um, uh, what a bit of sort of dance, although, yep, and and I like kind of mixing it 
all up because I never I don't really know what I want to do and then and so I like kind of mixing up different bits and pieces well the encore was epic could you describe what happened there you did the song 100 and then the song 200 <laughs> we did well one of the, the first yeah the last song was yeah counting from 1 to 100 and the encore was um an improvised extension of that from 101 to 200. But you had the visuals for it too, so when people are watching this they're seeing 1 to 100 go on the screen, then you had your little break there and you came back for the encore, and then you start playing and then the visuals started again. Ah, yeah, they did, yeah. Have you ever done that before? That was an epic encore. <laughs> oh, yeah, I have done it before. It was, um, but it, um, but, uh, I don't, uh, it's not, uh, like, uh, encores are funny because, like, if you plan, uh, you know, I don't know. It's, uh, I don't know. But well, that was the best encore ever. That's the best encore <laughs> I've ever seen. And also, you had the best alphabet song ever. And we're speaking here to Martin Creed, yeah. who's in Vancouver this weekend. And you can check out Martin Saturday night at 319 Main. More information at RennieCollection.org. And Martin's artwork's going to be in Vancouver for the next five months on display at the RennieCollection.org. Or you had the alphabet song. What was the alphabet song? That was the best one I've ever heard. Oh, well, yeah, that's uh, the lyrics of the alphabet. And then um, I find writing lyrics difficult, you know, because I don't know what I want to say. But, but I want to try and say something. So I thought if I sang the alphabet, you know, that's a, that would be a way of um, making some noises in a certain order, you know, Um and uh, it's in two verses, the alphabet song. It goes from A to M, and then there's an instrumental break, and then there's an, and then it goes from N to Z. So there's kind of thirteen uh, lines in each verse. Also, you had the mime. Who was the mime, and what was going on there at the very end? There, Martin uh, Creed. Uh, yeah, there was a dancer who was miming, who was mo- who was copying. Uh, my actions, everything I, I did um, when I was talking or moving, and uh, oh, the idea of that, that that came from sort of I I did some talks and I you know like talks about my work you know in, in art schools I used to do them you know years ago and and I got to thinking that I could maybe try because I think talking about things is different from actually doing them you know and and, and um, so talking about things is, is something in itself, you know. So I thought I'd try to make the talking into more of a, a spectacle. Um, because, because you know, no matter what you're doing, it's, all, you're always kind of, it's always kind of a wee bit of a performance, you know. So I thought if I had someone mimicking my actions and movements, you know, maybe it'd be a way of making those kind of everyday movements you make when, you, when you're talking, like kind of wee gestures. I, th- I thought it'd be a way of making them into something nice to look at, you know, because if someone's copying you and you've got a double, it makes it, it's like making a dance out of the everyday movements. It's kind of like amplifying. If you think of an amplifier as making louder the noises, this is like a kind of visual amplifier or something like that, you know, making, um, (laughs) making the actions um, louder. I'd never seen anything like that ever before. Had you done that before? Yeah, I had done it before, yeah. 
but I, I and um, but the the dancer who did it yesterday, I'd never met her. I'd never met her before, and and um, it, it, I don't. It's, I think it's good not to practice that kind of thing, you know. So I, I um, uh, uh, so uh, I, uh, we discussed it beforehand, so 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 that she knew um, the rules of the game, you know. She was very good too. It was awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought she was brilliant. She's one of the best people I've worked with. Actually, I, I'd only just met her, you know. And Martin, I couldn't quite understand when you broke a string oh, yeah. if it was planned or it was part of the show. <laughs> no, it wasn't planned at all. But I've got a tendency to break strings. I just can't work that out. I've tried, you know, thicker strings and uh, thinner plectrums and, um, you know, and uh, often, I don't know if it is because I've got a, a guitar with sharp edges or whether... Uh, I just need to uh, play differently, but I break a lot of strings. So, and uh, I don't have a guitar tech to throw me another guitar. So, um, I thought it'd be better just to change the strings live. You know, instead of worrying about, instead of kind of wor- worrying about. Well, because you're such a great artist, Martin Creed, I thought that perhaps that was part of the actual show. Like you actually changing the string. It was genius. The kind of. The way your show works is, it's like, was that part of the show? If you can make that part of the show, that makes a lot of pressure off <laughs> you, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, exactly. No, because I, I hate having to worry about things. And so if I can go on stage not worrying about breaking a string or not, because because actually maybe that, maybe the best bit of the show might be the bit where you do something by accident or it goes wrong, you know. I think oftentimes when I go to shows, you know, the the best bits are the kind of bits where weird things go wrong, you know, and the person who's performing is caught unawares, you know, because those kind of automatic performances, you know, tend to be more kind of boring, you know. And you are Martin Creed in Vancouver for a couple of days and performing on Saturday night at 10.30 p.m. And your yeah. artwork's going to be in Vancouver, as I keep mentioning, for like the next five months at the Rennie Collections. Go to RennieCollection.org, R-E-N-N-I-E, Collection.org. Now, tomorrow at 10.30 p.m. at 319 Main, information at RennieCollection.org, uh-huh. is there going to be video and the same band that I saw last night? Yeah. What's going to be happening? It's going to be, yeah, it's going to be the band, and we're going to do some visuals, some of the same, some of those films and stuff. But it'll be more, um, I suppose, we'll, it'll be more of a, because uh, last night it was in a theatre, you know, it was a bit more, and with some talking and stuff, but I think it'll be more, um, it'll be more straight up uh, music. Uh, harder, a bit harder. Oh, Martin Creed, the video was really incredible last night. Specifically, the dick rising and falling. <laughs> and, like, you're playing as a dick is rising and a dick is falling. <laughs> Whose dick is it? And is it hard to film a dick? Could you describe <laughs> this to the people that didn't see it? Uh, that was, like, I don't know who it was, actually. I, I never saw his face. But he was uh, uh, an actor. Uh, and... Uh, but the way the way I, the way I did it was uh, that uh, I filmed the erection going down, you know, 
because you don't there are no there are no strings attached you know you, there's no hands involved you just see the willy going up and down so I filmed it going down and then I played it backwards if you see what I mean Ah, well, I was thinking that maybe you'd have the dick squirt when it was at the top and then drop down. <laughs> because you love wanking. Had you ever thought about that, having the dick squirt? Yeah, I've thought about that. I've thought about that. But, um, but in this one, in this film, I just wanted to have the, just have the up and down. You know, like, a, like the, like, like, kind of like the, um, like a clock. You know, like the like the arms of a clock. So the dick is going up and down, and then you're playing guitar, musical accompaniment to yeah. the dick. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, so it's like a, I suppose like a snake charmer or something like that, or but or in a way, it's like the ultimate guitar solo. You know, the ultimate kind of wank guitar solo. Does the whole band look at the dick for cues? Uh, no, because they no, because the, the bass and drums are doing a backing track, a kind of backing. And it's led by the guitar. I have to, I have to look at it because I'm playing with the cock. Martin, the Rennie Collection exhibition that I alluded to. Could you describe a little bit about it? There's balloons in there. Is that different than your sculpture at Nasher? What is Nasher, and what are the balloons? The Na- Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas where, is where I've got a show, another show on at the moment, which in, consists of gold balloons. But I've made a few different sculptures using balloons, and which are different colours, are different works. And here in Vancouver, there's a pink balloon work. And but the, the exhibition is all of works that Bob Rennie owns. So um, it's a show of the and he's the he's the, the collector, probably the biggest collector of my work. You know, that owns that he's the person who's bought the, the most. You know, um, works all all in one place. Uh, of mine and um, but I guess for particularly for people that maybe can't really picture right off the bat <laughs> the balloons this is like one little lame balloon there's quite a few bal- what's going yeah, on so, yeah so the space is half filled with balloons so um, uh, the, I was trying to make a sculpture you know that, that, that takes that always takes the shape of the room and the people in it you know and uh, the room's half filled with balloons, and so you walk, you just kind of walk in, um, and uh, you're surrounded. Um, so it, it's, um, well, I don't know what it is, but it's, it's, it is. There's balloons everywhere, and then there's people running around as well? Aye, uh, there's another work which consists of people running um, uh, through the gallery. Do they run into the balloon area? No, they don't. No, they don't. No, the idea of the running is just that someone... Like that, to me, that's just like a really simple dance. If you think of dance as moving your body, you know, and running as fast as you can is just moving your body as fast as you possibly can. And so it's like a really simple wee dance piece. And, uh, and so someone runs through the gallery... If, you know, it's just about every 40 seconds. It takes them about 20 seconds to run around this sort of course around the gallery. And, they, and then there's a 20-second rest. And then someone else comes out. Where have you done this before? I did that originally at the Tate Gallery in London. Um, did you have to audition the runners? Did you want a certain... 
type yeah, of they, runner? Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, they had to be good enough because to do that, because it, it, I think it's because I tried it with people kind of jogging, you know, or or, or um, I tried it with kind of. Uh, people running more slowly but I realised that, that for it to be exciting it's got to be fast really you know so that, so the people just have to be quite well trained runners um, and you and you have Bob's Broccoli as well there at the Rennie Collection Exhibition. We're speaking to Martin Creed, who's having an exhibition of some of the stuff in Vancouver for the next couple months at the Rennie Collection, and also is playing this Saturday at 319 Main with his band at 10.30pm. Bob's Broccoli. What's Bob's Broccoli? That relates to a 7-inch record? Yeah, well, I was trying to design a record sleeve for a 7-inch vinyl, and I was, th- I was trying to think of something that would fit onto a 7-inch record cover you know, one-to-one size, and I thought that, well, I got to thinking that broccoli is about the size of a seven-inch, you know, and then I tried doing a print, you know, like a potato print, like kids do, where you cut the potato in half and make a print, so I did the same with broccoli, I cut it in half and made a a print with paint, you know, and I kind of liked it, because it looks like a tree, you know, and I like broccoli, and I thought it, it was nice. And 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 it, and, and um, Bob Rennie saw some of these prints I'd made, and he commissioned this uh, big work with a thousand broccoli prints. So each one, each print is made with a different color of paint. Because when I'm, because I, I find colors really difficult. You know, I like colors, and I think they're really important. But I've got no idea which colors are the best colors. You know. And so in this work, I tried to use all, I tried to buy all the paints, you know, I could possibly find. And and I made one broccoli print with each type of paint. And, and they, so they're all being exhibited in one room, these 1,000 uh, broccoli prints. And also, there's a piano? There's a piano that slams, yeah. So it's a grand, a baby grand piano that, uh, where the lid comes up and the you know the lid for the keys and the lid for the top of the piano all these kind of bits come up and then slam down so it's kind of like well, I was trying to write a piece of music for piano you know but making kind of making the piano make noise but without um, using the keys and yet, but it's so it's like a kind of piece of music, but it's also sort of like a sort of sculpture to look at, you know. And that's in the basement of the gallery. What do you think about people touching the stuff, or say popping the balloons? What's your reaction to that? Or you don't care once it's all set up? I don't mind what people do. Yeah, I like you know. I mean, I like. Have you ever walked into an exhibition of your stuff and seen people maybe touching it or pushing it around? Do you like laugh or do you say hands off? <laughs> Um, I, um, I, I think I don't know if I, I don't know if I would laugh or say hands off. I wouldn't say I, I don't. I like. I think it's nice if people are free, you know, to um, to do what they they want. Because sometimes people at the institutions where it's being displayed 
aren't so forgiving for people touching stuff. For instance, Rodney Graham, a fellow artist that you know from mm -hmm. Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, he had an exhibition, and I had heard from Rodney that like you walk in the room and then you can move the turntable around, the needle on the turntable, and that turns on and off some music or some lights or something like that. So I walked in the room and started playing with the turntable. And they said, no, you can't touch that. That's like initially put on, and then it stays that way forever and ever. But I thought you're allowed to touch the turntable, and I got in trouble for touching the turntable. <laughs> Have people gotten in trouble for touching your stuff? Um, well, not, not from me. But I think some of the works I've made that maybe that maybe sometimes if a museum owns a work and they want to preserve it, then they might stop people from touching it if it, in case it might damage the work, you know. And, but um, I wouldn't stop anyone from touching anything. Um, but what about the balloons that are in the exhibition? How long are those going to last? Well, they'll be replenished from time to time. Because they go, they do go, they do. I mean, apart from losing them out of the door, you know, because, you know, they, often you, you lose a few and someone goes in or out, you know, and they also go down over time that they lose air. So they'll be replenished every so often. And we're speaking here to Martin Creed, who has an exhibition of his artwork. Happening right now in Vancouver, RennieCollection.org, and is also playing this Saturday with his band at 319 Main at 10.30 p.m. this Saturday night. Is there anything else at the exhibition, lastly, at the exhibition we haven't mentioned there, when people go into the Rennie Collection exhibition? The balloons, running, piano, broccoli, what else is going to be in there? Uh, there's also a door opening and closing, which is um, a kind of uh, kinetic sculpture. And uh, there's a video work with people vomiting, which is in the show as well, which is a kind of a synchronized vomiting where uh, it's got a mul it's, got, it's made it's with multiple screens, uh, and there's also a piece with 39 metronomes. Uh, you know the type of musical metronomes used for keeping time in music. I, I, I made a, a sculpture with those. Those kind of metron, those are the traditional pyramid-shaped metronomes. They have uh, thirty-nine different speeds, and I had the idea to, 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 if I got one of, if I got thirty-nine metronomes and had one each one at a different speed, I could make a a kind of noise which consists of all of the different speeds, and so that's one of the sculptures which you can see there as well. Does that mean now that Bob owns it, it's out of circulation, like it won't be exhibited anywhere else? Uh, no, because it can be, I mean, it can be lent. He does lend works. I, I've had some of his works that he owns have been lent, lent to other exhibitions. But also, um, that for example, some of the works are unique, so if he has them, then that's it. But if but some of the works are additions, like the metronome work is an addition of three, for example. So then, so there are two others like that in the in the world, you know. Martin Creed, have you been into any museum vaults at all to see rare items? You know, you're doing a lot of these exhibitions and stuff. Have you had access to any neat vaults at all? And no, no, I can't know that I can think of. Like, have you ever touched a Da Vinci or a Billy Childish? A Billy, yeah, I've touched a Billy Childish. I am, um, in fact, I've been to his house in um, Kent, 
not long ago where um, he invited me to come down for tea one Sunday and he read me his poetry in his kitchen. When did you first become aware of Billy Childish? Because he's kind of around the same age as you, isn't he? Uh, well, he's a bit older, but I, I became a, I became aware of this because a friend of mine called Matthew Higgs, who I knew just after I was a student, uh, um, he was a big fan of Billy Childish, and so I went. I used to go and see Billy playing with the head with the headcoats and the headcoatees, and. Uh, and the, and the band Armitage Shanks would always support them. I used to go up to see them in the in Tufnell Park in sorry in Archway in London, where they used to play every you know month or two. And um, I always really liked his music. And uh, aye, so that but that was pro- so that was it would have been in about nineteen ninety two or three or something like that. I never realized back then, because I was listening to him back then as well, about all his art and the stuckism and stuff. I didn't realize about all that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, well, I suppose that happened just a bit after that, or around about that time, yeah, a bit after that. Um, I really like his paintings. I especially like his uh, poetry and his writing. I don't know you know, whether you call it poetry or it doesn't matter what you call it, but you know, I like, the write- I like his writing a lot. I think it's brilliant. And his wife, Nurse Julie, is from Seattle, and you did a gig in Seattle, didn't you? Oh, yeah, we did. I, oh, I didn't realize she's from Seattle. Oh, yeah. But, um, yeah, we did a, a gig in Seattle last uh, two two nights ago. Um, uh, this place called Western Bridge, which is like an art, kind of visual art place. Um, Ah, yeah. Oh, she from Seattle. I didn't, I didn't realize that. But his, his band's great, and that guy who plays the drums is brilliant. Is his name Wolf? Wolf, yeah, Wolf. Martin Creed, yeah. what art have you had to wear white slippers to look at? You talked about that last <laughs> night. <laughs> oh, God. I don't know. I've been to some... Well, it's like what you were saying about not touching the work or touching it, but... I hate that thing where people tell you what to do, or or or, the, or if they make you like take off your shoes and put on special slippers. I can't think of the exact example, but there are various works where I've had to do that. You know, because they maybe you have to take off your shoes, put on these special slippers, so you don't damage the floor, or you know, and then you walk around, um, or because they don't want markings on the floor. It did. I did. There was a piece. It was a white room with white carpet, and you had to put on white slippers so that you didn't make marks on the floor. But then, could that also be considered art in a way too, like wearing the white slippers on the white carpet? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. And I wouldn't want to. No, absolutely. Bye. And I. No, exactly. Have you had anybody had to change in, into anything? Like, have you had anything where people going to see some of your art have to wear certain things or change into something? Me. Yeah, like of no any way. I'd hate. I wouldn't want to make people do it because I hate being. I hate being. I hate. I hate being told to do anything. You know, so I like just feeling free that I can come and go as I please. You know. But just have it there, so if people wanted to, they could. Yeah, exactly. No, absolutely. And I wouldn't want to stop anyone else from wearing white slippers. Don't get me wrong. 
Martin Creed, you're in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada for a few days. As I mentioned, your artwork's going to be at the ReadyCollection.org for the next five months in Vancouver. People can check out the stuff that we mentioned. You're also playing this Saturday with your band at 319 Main at 10.30 p.m. What do you think, Martin Creed, of the new line of action figures of contemporary artists that they have? They have this action figure mm-hmm. line. Yes, like for instance, there's an action figure of Banksy that is $1,200, and there's one of Vincent Van Gogh that's $900, and Dali that's $900. How does Banksy end up being more expensive than Van Gogh and Dali? (laughs) I don't know. I think that's probably due to the way, um, the strange way that things are valued in the world that we live in. Would you pay 1200 for a Banksy action figure? What do you think about action figures? Is there a Martin action figure? Um, well, there's me, you know, um, but there's no... No, I don't think there is, no. Not that I'm aware of. Could you unmask Banksy if you wanted to? Have you met Banksy at all? Could you unmask him? No, I couldn't. I don't know. I know. No, I haven't met him to my knowledge. Do you know anybody that ever has come across him? Uh, um, I think so, yeah. But, um, yeah, I have met someone who said that they'd met him, but I can't remember who it was. How did they know that they met him? Like, how do you know <laughs> that you meet Banksy? <laughs> I don't know. I can't remember, actually. Yeah, that's, uh, that's um, a good question. Martin Creed, what was the first punk gig that you went to? You mentioned the head coach. What was the first punk gig you went to? Like, was it in Wakefield? How did you get into punk rock? Oh, yeah. Well, it was because, I, no, it wasn't in Wakefield because I, I was born in Wakefield, but I grew, I moved, my parents moved to Glasgow in Scotland when I was three, so I grew up in Glasgow. And when I was about um, 12, there was this neighbor, this guy who was older than me, he was really into music and records, and I used to go around to his house, and because he was older than me, I could go, he, my parents let me go to gigs, you know, because I was younger, and he, you know, was older and looked after me or whatever, you know, and um, it was, he, he had this, that's where I heard, like, the undertones and stiff little fingers and the jam uh, so it was like later punk, I suppose you would call it, you know, like... Um, How about local bands? Who was like the first local band that you saw? Did you see any of Alex Caprano's of Franz Ferdinand's ska bands at all? No, I never did see that. No, because that was slightly later. That would have been after I'd left Glasgow. Because I went, when I was 17, I went to London to art school. But but the first band, like the jam were the band that I was into when I was a when I was a teenager, they were the big band that I was into, and I was into the Smiths as well. But the first band I ever saw live was The Cure. Uh, the Cure during the fa- the album Faith Tour. Uh, uh, um, and then, you know, I saw The Jam a lot, and um, The Smiths. I was into Billy Bragg as well. Were you excited that Wakefield produced The Cribs? Yeah. I really like the Cribs. Yeah. I um, I think they're brilliant. And how about Franz Ferdinand? You've been doing some recording with Nick from Franz Ferdinand. Aye, he's brilliant. Aye, and I like, they're, they're brilliant. I like them all. It's, uh, and um, aye, it's really inspiring to work with Nick. And uh, aye, and we've been doing some, he's been producing some songs for for this album I'm trying to 
finish. And we're going to play a couple of those to wind up here on an Ardwar to Human Serviette Radio Show with Martin Creed. We're going to play Thinking Not Thinking. And I also discovered, yes, we have the song Die. That's a new one, right? Die? Oh, yeah. Die is a new one as well. Yeah. And I don't know if you've got this other one called Where You Go. I will go dig for that one. <laughs> I definitely have die and thinking, not thinking. And lastly, lastly here, Martin Creed. Again, we're speaking to Martin Creed, artist, musician, Martin Creed. Check out RennieCollection.org. Martin's stuff is in Vancouver right now. And also he's playing on Saturday night at 319 Main. For art, I was wondering, when was the first piece of pure conceptual art? When was it? Some people have tagged that as like 1913. But what about Stone Age times? I always thought conceptual art started during Stone Age times when like a caveman apparently (laughs) threw a rock in a lake and the ripples happened and then that was a conceptual art. When did it begin, Martin? Well, I would agree with you, but... I would I would agree with you if I believed in conceptual art, which I don't, um, because I don't believe you can separate ideas or thoughts from um, from feelings and emotions, and therefore the idea that there's a kind of a cerebral form of art, art to me that's separate from anything else is not, and it's not possible because I because I think life's all just a big soup of, you know, feelings and thoughts and... And um, and, um well, and tricks, because with you, Martin Creed, it's hard exactly to know what's going on. Like, for instance, <laughs> the changing of the guitar string. Is that part of the show or is it not part of the show? And also your own website. There are so many broken links, like in a section called Words. Now, are they broken links or are they <laughs> performance art? The which section is I No, that is just a genuinely badly made No, it's, it's, it's art, isn't it? It's art. In the Words section of martincreed.com, if you click on it, there are some broken links. I know. And I thought it's on purpose that they're broken. No, it's, it's art. Not on purpose. But, you know, you can't quite... I mean, I don't know how you would do it, but you cannot... I don't think you can break strings. I guess you could break strings on purpose if you really... But when I... I don't know. You know, it's, strings tend to break... Um, oh, uh, when... Uh, in, in, an, in an unpredictable way. Oh, but I think because people might expect something interesting from your shows, you break the strings, which I think is normal, but then you tuning up the strings could be part of the show. That's what I was thinking. Like, you actually physically tuning them up could be part of the show, or maybe it isn't part of the show. So a lot of times when you're watching a performer play and they break a string, like, oh, they better hurry. You know, this is kind of slowing down the show. The show's going off the rails. But when you broke the strings and started tuning up, you know, and slowly doing it, I was like, yeah, that's really cool. You're making this look really sexy. This looks to be, this looks to be part of the show. Same thing like you go to your website, you click on some of your links they're broken you're like i'm not mad they're broken ha ha martin yes this is great this is genius daily mail headline the 12th of june 2001 martin creed the artful dodger this man sells paper balls for pounds 20 a time to art collectors how does he get away with it how do you get away with it? What was going on there? The man sells paper balls. How do you get away with it? <laughs> I, well, I don't get away with it in the sense that um, uh, well, I don't think I, I get away with it. it with, uh, and, you know, because um, there's nothing 
Dang. Well, what were the balls? Because the Daily Mail headline there didn't really say what were the balls. We uh, talk- the, well, actually, there's one of the balls is in the show at Rennie. It's a crumpled ball of paper. Um, uh, uh, and it's just a wee sculpture. I was trying to make something using a piece of paper. And I thought, oh, there's nothing I want to draw on here and or write. And I, I thought, uh, if I made a ball out of it, that's a nice shape that is... I like balls because uh, the ball shape is equal in all directions, which is, um, which means you don't, you know, you don't with a ball, you don't have to decide what the front or the back is, you know. So I thought, isn't it be nice to make a ball? So, so it's just, and so, so, so there's a piece of paper crumpled into a ball. And you sell them? Yeah, yeah. You can buy actually. You can buy them on my website. Um, and it comes, the crumpled ball comes um, packaged in um, in shredded paper in a in a little box with a certificate. You can get them on my website if you. Uh, I think they're one hundred and fifty dollars. Martin Creed, what was the blue tack, and is there still a blue tack, and is there going to be a blue tack at Rennie? Uh, no, there's no blue tack at Rennie, you know. But the blue tack is, uh, I don't know, do you have blue tack in, in is it the same uh, product? Do you have it in Canada? I'm not exactly sure what it is. I just imagined a blue tack. Aye, it's like a, a blue, pin. it's called blue tack, and it's used for sticking posters on the wall or whatever, you know, it's like a, it's, it, 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 it's like a um, squashy, sticky material. Um, using used to stop things slipping or to stick things on the wall, and um, I made a little sculpture with a little bit of blue tack, um, and it's blue. And what did you do with it? I stuck it on the wall. And where was that? At the Tate too? And there was one of those I think that was exhibited at the Tate. Yeah. Um, but they're quite small, and you can those kind of works, and you can easily miss them, you know. That bothers me, actually, because I think that it's good if you can see. I don't really like it when if people come in and think, and they're trying to work out what they're supposed to be looking at. Where do you get a lot of your stuff, Martin? Like, for instance, on work number 928, you have some desks. I don't really want to call them desks. I feel like yeah, belittling tables. something. Some tables piled up on top of each other. I like the bottom table. It really looked really nice. Where did you get that table? That table, I got it in Rome. I think if it's the, if it's the one I'm thinking of, that work was made in Rome. So, I, But it's kind of improvised. I went to Rome to do a show and um, uh, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I tried to often do things quite at the last minute and try to kind of improvise. You know, that's the way the live shows quite uh, um, uh, kind of improvised, you know. But So I went round Rome and tried to find lots of different... I had the idea of making a pile of tables, you know, getting smaller and higher. And I wanted each one to be completely different from the other. So one, like we got it from Ikea in Rome, and then that bottom table was from an old... Uh, you know, sort of um, old furniture store. That's awesome to use IKEA. Oh yeah, yeah. And that's a photographic work. The one with the table. N- work number nine two eight. No, it's not a photographic work. No, no, it's a, it's an actual sculpture. Oh wow! That, yeah, I couldn't tell if it was a photo or. Have you ever thought of taking photos and then displaying the photos, and then you don't have to put the whole sculpture in? 
Yeah, I have thought of that. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I've made some photographic works for that um, reason. But it's funny because a photo always makes a picture out of the, uh, the problem with a photo is it's got an edge, you know, so you have to, so you're always making a sort of picture out of something. And and, and I think that's a, pr- a problem or a difficulty because the world, you know, doesn't have edges, you know, everything just seems to be kind of joined together in a sort of blobby mass, you know, in my experience. So to make to put to draw a line around something and make it distinct from the rest of the world it always f- can feel quite artificial as if you're going against nature you know so if you do a, if you do a photograph it always has an edge so it always makes a sort of picture out of something and i, I find that like a difficult strange thing you know Martin Creed, lastly, are you looking for anybody to bring you anything? Are you looking for anything these days? Are you hunting for anything that people should bring down to the show on Saturday night? Are you looking for anything? Oh, no. I'm, yeah, I'm definitely looking for something, but but um, it wouldn't be... I don't, I don't, like, I, I don't know what I'm looking for, <laughs> you know. So if people come, I'd like to meet them, you know. Uh, I don't... But there's nothing to... Um, I don't know what I'm looking for. I just don't want to feel better, you know. MartinCreed.com, lots of information there. And Rennie Collection, R-E-N-N-I-E Collection.org. And people can check out the exhibition because it's in Vancouver for five months, right? For five yeah. months. Wow, that's, yeah, it is. Yeah, that's a long time. And they can check out your band tomorrow night. Sorry, on, yeah, tomorrow, Saturday. Yeah, tomorrow, Saturday night. S- Saturday at 319 Main. And lastly, lastly here, Martin, we are going to play... Thinking, not thinking. What can you say about thinking, not thinking, and die? These particular tracks we're going to play. Uh, thinking, not thinking. Uh, the lyrics. I try. I was just trying to write about my life as I experienced it. Um, thinking that I was thinking that you know half the time I seem to be thinking, and then the rest of the time I'm not thinking. You know, I, I flip between being aware of what I'm doing and being unaware, and that seems to describe. What, what what was happening in my life, and I thought, and then when I had once I had the lyrics, I thought I'll have one. I I, I I thought the song should have two chords, so there's one chord for thinking, and another chord for not thinking, and um, and it, it, when you hear the song, you can hear there's a sort of gap, you know, there's a, like the song stops and starts, you know, as you uh, and. Uh, and that gap is uh, so that I can change chords on the guitar. You know, because when you move from one chord to another on the guitar, you know, you have to kind of readjust your hand and move it. So there are these gaps in the songs, which is a chance to change chords. And how about Die? And, oh, God, Die was just... <laughs> oh, I was just feeling really um, bad, terrible. And I was trying to write about wanting to die and wanting to crawl up. And often, when I, when I, when I, if I, when I felt really, at times in my life when I felt really, really bad and sad, I've sometimes at home I've crawl like I crawl underneath my desk, you know, and um, get underneath something, you know, and and um, lie down. And uh, so the song is just writing about wanting to die and wanting to 
get underneath something. Are these going to be released on a record at all? Yeah, they'll be on the new album that I'm working on, which uh, which should be out at the end of the year or uh, or around the end of the year, which is probably going to be called Love to You. And who's putting it out? It's going to be on my own label called Telephone Records. And who's going to do the distro for that? Uh, we've got some kind of distribution sorted out, but I don't know the name of it. But um, but we're looking for all kinds of distribution that, that might be possible. Well, thanks so much for phoning into Nardward a Human Serviette radio show, Martin Creed. And thanks also to Nick from Franz Ferdinand for hooking this up. Aye, thanks a lot, yeah. Nick from Franz Ferdinand. Thank you, Nick. Aye, Thank you. Thanks, Nick. And his great band, Box Kodaks, too. Absolutely, I've got a new album out. In fact, I've been, I've, uh, I'm, I'm making a video for one of his songs. You know, one of the songs on, on his new Box Kodaks album. I love the song Choco Pudding. Yeah, that's brilliant, yeah. What's going to be in the video you're making, and what song is it? I'm, um, I'm, um, it's it's like a, I'm doing. I thought I had the idea to um, film the lyrics because I thought um, uh, I thought that I've never. I, I thought if I film the. Uh, you, did you do the lyrics for your own gig last night that I saw? Did you film the lyrics, like for those little videos that I saw? You know where you had the song "None." Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, but that was kind of an ana- that was an animation. So for next video, I've, I've kind of filmed um, uh, highlighting the um, lyrics and, and uh, 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 I. But I haven't finished it yet. I have to finish it actually on Monday. I'm kind of trying to finish the editing. But the I I suppose the the lyrics last night. Yeah, the lyrics come up behind some of the songs, you know, so you can follow. It's funny, because often when I see bands live, I wish I could hear the lyrics better, you know? That thing where, because of the sound system or whatever, or because of the blast of the sound, sometimes you can't hear the lyrics. And um, Well, some punk bands used to hand out lyric sheets, and some still do, to the audience. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. I've never... Oh, that's funny, yeah. I think Crass might have even done that. <laughs> really, that's... Ah, that's funny, yeah. But you're doing the same thing except on the big screen. And check it out tomorrow night at 319 Main. Well, thanks so much, Martin, for calling into the Nardware Human Serviette Radio Show. Anything else you want to add to the people out there at all? Oh, eh, I don't know. um, It's nice to be here. Well, thanks so much, Martin. Keep on rocking in the free world. And do 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 Yeah! (laughs) All right, see ya. See ya. Bye. Bye.
Where you go? 